You might not have noticed it before. This is not something that we've pointed out as we've gone through these lessons on the Twelve. But there are four lists of the names of the Twelve Apostles that we find in Scripture, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then another in Acts. But in each of those lists, the names of the Twelve are always divided into three groups of four names each. And the order of the names within each one of those groups varies from list to list. But we always find the same four names grouped together. So we always find at the top of the list, in one order or another, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. These are the men we know best out of the twelve. They were the ones who were the closest to Jesus. They're the ones who form that inner circle of his disciples. Even Andrew, even though he's uh, somewhat on the outside of it compared to Peter, James, and John, we still find that even Andrew is privy to some events that the rest of the twelve are not. Then we always find in the next group, in one order or another, Philip, Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, Thomas, and Matthew. Now, we know a little bit less about these men than we do about the first four men, but still, we know enough about each one of these for them to all emerge as distinct characters in their own right. But then we come to this last group of four names, and with the exception, obviously, of Judas Iscariot, these four are easily the least known to us. They're virtually silent in the gospel accounts. About the only thing that we know about them is that Jesus called each one of these men to be apostles. But that is something that we know about. Do any of you remember when you were in school and you're playing some sport or some game and they chose captains and they picked teams that way. You know, you'd have a captain of one team and captain of another. They'd go back and forth until they had chosen up sides. Uh, that's not exactly protocol these days. I don't think they do that in schools anymore because it hurts some people's feelings. Uh, but some of you probably experienced that when you were growing up. Well, were you ever one of those kids that the teams fought over which one was going to get you? My dad talks about being that kid. You guys take Perkins. <laughs> no way, man. We had him last time. That's not fair. You take him. We don't want him. Were you ever that leftover kid? The one that nobody wants? And you've done the math in your head. You can see it going back and forth. You know which team you're going to end up on. And then you see when the captain of that team recognizes it, and there's that crestfallen look on their face as they realize they're going to be stuck with you. I don't know if any of you ever experienced that firsthand or not. But I bring all that up to say, my, my point is, God doesn't have a second string. God chooses people, and it's not like that. There, there's no regrets about it. There's no remorse. God doesn't feel like he's stuck with you. Millions of God's most faithful servants are virtually unknown to us. 
And in fact, when you think about all of the literally millions of people who faithfully followed Jesus down through the centuries, we know barely a handful of them. They labored quietly and anonymously. Oh, there are some things we can know about them in, in some sense. We, we know that they followed Jesus, and so we can make some assumptions about people. But their strengths, their weaknesses, their personalities, we don't know about those. We don't know about their accomplishments. We don't know the names of all the individuals that they influenced positively for the kingdom. And so when it comes to this last group here in the 12, including the man we're going to talk about tonight, James the Less, including him in particular, we need to keep in mind that these men were all apostles. And that means something. Each and every one of them risked everything, left everything behind in order to follow Christ. Uh, Peter speaks for all of them. Luke chapter 18 and verse 28 when he says, We have left all and followed you. Each of them left their houses, their hometowns, their jobs, their lands, families, friends, all of that behind to follow Jesus. Ultimately, they faced persecution. They faced death. That took courage. They all became valiant witnesses for Jesus. James, the less, stands out almost as, as an archetype or a representative of those unknowns that we're talking about, whether we're talking about unknown servants of Jesus in general or whether we're talking about among the twelve in particular. When we think about his life, the only thing that we know about him is his name. He's James, the son of Alphaeus. If he ever wrote anything, it's lost to history, hasn't been preserved. If he ever asked Jesus any notable question, it wasn't recorded for us. If he ever did anything at all to stand out, we don't know about it. He is completely and utterly obscure. Even his name is common. You know, the Greek name James, that's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Jacob. And if you know that, then you realize why this is a pretty common name. And so we encounter multiple men in the New Testament named James. There's James, the son of Zebedee. We already looked at him in one of these lessons. He's well known to us among the twelve. There's another James who was the son of Mary and Joseph. That makes him a half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he ultimately became a believer. He didn't believe during Jesus' life, but the Lord made a special resurrection appearance to him. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. James became a believer, and he even ultimately became one of the leaders there in the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, he's there essentially presiding over the conference that the church has. Galatians, Paul talks about him as one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. And it's that James who went on to write the letter that we have, the epistle of James in the New Testament. All we know about this James, he's the son of Alphaeus. We know the name of his mother, too. 
Mark chapter 15 and verse 40 says that his mother was named Mary and he had a brother named Joseph. His mother was also a believer in Jesus. She was one of those women who was present at the crucifixion. She was also one of those who came to the tomb to continue to prepare Jesus' body on that first day of the week and found it empty. James's lack of prominence is even reflected in his nickname. I titled this lesson, and I've repeatedly referred to him as James the Less. That obviously is his nickname. That's what he's referred to as there in Mark 15 and verse 40. And the Greek word there translated as less, the Greek word's mikros. That's where we get our word micro from. And so that tells you right there what it literally means is small or little. So literally, he's little James. And sometimes this could be used to refer to someone who's, who's short or small in stature, so maybe that's why he got that nickname. It was also used sometimes to refer to someone who's younger in age, and in fact, the English Standard Version, for example, and some other translations actually translate it that way, James the Younger rather than James the Less. Maybe he was called that because he was younger in age than James the son of Zebedee. In fact, whether that's why he got the nickname or not, he almost certainly was younger because otherwise he probably would have been called James the Elder to distinguish him. But I think the most likely reason that he has this nickname is due to his lack of prominence compared to the other James. You know, James, the son of Zebedee, he's a prominent man, wasn't he? Certainly among the twelve. He's part of Jesus' inner circle there, Peter, James, and John. And not just among the twelve, if you remember when we looked at James and we looked at John, John's Gospel, chapter 18, uh, their family was known to the high priest. So James came from a family that was well known in contrast to James the son of Alphaeus. And so James the son of Alphaeus becomes James the less. For all we know, maybe all those things we said were true about him. Maybe he was a, a small, young, quiet guy. The only thing that really is notable about him is how he blends in. He's completely and totally common. You know, we've talked about this series as 12 ordinary men. In a lot of ways, James the Less is the most ordinary among 12 ordinary men. But maybe that in itself is something significant. You know, James evidently didn't seek any recognition for himself. He didn't leave any notable works behind for posterity. All we know about him was his name. Whatever works he did, they're, they're lost to history. We don't know about them. But he was one of the twelve. The Lord chose him for a reason. Jesus didn't just go about doing this haphazardly. And James had the privilege of accompanying Jesus day in, day out, for the better part of three years. James had the ability to hear Jesus firsthand. James was able to see the expressions on his face. He saw when he wept tears of compassion. He saw when 
Jesus smiled because faith became sight in someone. James witnessed the miracles that Jesus performed firsthand. He saw blind eyes made to see, deaf ears opened, useless limbs that were healed, dead raised. James was one of the few who was privileged to witness all of these things. And Jesus trained him and empowered him just like he did the others. Jesus sent him out with this mission to be his witness, just like he did the others. James reminds me of those people we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 33. You know, Hebrews 11 is this, we, we call it sometimes this hall of fame, this, these heroes of the faith. And the writer here has just gone through listing the, the big ones, the important names we all know. You know, uh, Abraham and Noah and Moses. And then he says if he were to list everyone, he just couldn't. Time would fail him. And he says there are those, verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stomped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. Eternity will reveal the names and the works of those people who are listed there. People who are just like James the Less. People whom the world barely remembers, if they remember them at all. But God remembers them. And that's what's important. They lived lives of faith. They made a difference. We can imagine that the New Testament might contain some extra books that we don't have. You know, what if it had uh, the, the memoirs of Matthew or the biography of Barnabas or the journal of James the Less? And let's imagine that each one of these books had an extensive account of all the acts the deeds of these men, all the churches that they planted, all the places that they went, uh, a list of all the names of people that they converted to Christ. Now, that might be interesting reading. We might like to ha have that. But would it really matter? Would any of that really make a difference? You know, you read through the book of Acts and all of the apostles, drop off from the history within just a few short years of the day of Pentecost. For most of them in Acts, we don't know anything about what they did. The story follows Peter and John. We know about some things that they did, but even John there is sort of second banana to Peter. And before long, Peter himself 
drops from the scene about halfway through the story. You see, the focus is not on these men. It's not on the twelve. It's always on Christ and on the gospel, on the word that's being spread. I think even here about the end of Acts. We follow the story of Paul. Now, Paul is not one of the twelve, of course, but Paul becomes an apostle. Uh, He's the apostle untimely born, the one to the Gentiles. And we follow Paul all through that second half of Acts. And we follow him to Jerusalem. We follow him as he's arrested. We see him in prison and through a couple of different trials and an appeal to Caesar and then a harrowing voyage to Rome. And we leave him there in Rome awaiting trial. And we wonder, what's going to happen to Paul? That's what we're thinking about, the way we usually read Acts. And the book just ends. We don't know. We want to know what happened to Paul. But Luke finishes his story by saying that Paul continued two whole years in his own hired house, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What happens to Paul doesn't really matter. The focus is on proclaiming the gospel without hindrance on the kingdom of God continuing to advance. See, these men, the twelve, they're only instruments of God's power. They're what Paul calls earthen vessels, the jars of clay, the treasures inside. We focus on the lives of these men, but what we know that's important is they were all filled with the Spirit. They all went around preaching the gospel. They all lived lives of faith. That's all we really need to know. Because it's not about the vessels. It's about the treasure that's inside. And I think that that's a message that is, or at least should be, a source of strength and encouragement to all of us who are here tonight. Because you look around any sort of room like this, We're not so very different from the apostles. We're all individuals in a crowd. Each of us has our own strengths and our own weaknesses. We each have our own sins that we struggle with and that we try to hide from others. There are times when we don't understand the word just like the twelve are sometimes thick-headed and they just didn't get what Jesus was talking about. Anger, frustration, disappointment, jealousy, pride, those are things that we all struggle with at times. Those are things that the twelve all had to deal with at times. We see that over and over in the gospel accounts. We each have histories that are unpleasant, We each carry guilt, regret about things that we've done and wish that we could undo. We all have secrets that we guard for fear of judgment. That's our situation. But that's the situation for the 12, too. As we've said over and over, they were 12 ordinary men. 
just like within, Jesus, in his mercy and in his grace, invites us. He encourages us. He sends us to be his co-workers, to go out and to spread the gospel. We all can be used in a meaningful way in the Lord's work. Every one of us here. Now, we might look at the ministries of people like Peter and Paul or a Barnabas or a John and become easily discouraged. They seem superhuman. We can't be like that. But I think it's helpful if we see that really we're a lot more like James the Less. People who are otherwise anonymous, people who are known only to God, he represents the majority of key players in the kingdom. And the Lord wants people just like that to come and to be his co-workers. Even when we have weaknesses, even when we have shortcomings, even when our work seems insignificant to most people in the world. We imagined if we had these memoirs of so many of the apostles, but we all can write our own story of service to the Lord. Now, I have to tell you, it's probably not going to be a bestseller. It's probably going to be much more like the story of James the Less, one that's not read or even known by most people. It's known only to God. He represents a, a long line of disciples whose works have gone down unknown in history. And our story will be full of mistakes and failures and second chances and missed opportunities. But that's okay. Because even if no one else sees the story that we write, the Lord sees it. He values it. He doesn't call us to be perfect. He doesn't call us to be Peter or John or Paul. He just calls us to serve him to the best of our ability. But that means we need to actually be serious about serving him to the best of our ability because as flawed and as imperfect as that is, he still calls us to do that. And so the question for you tonight is, are you serving him to the best of your ability? Are you giving your all to the Lord? If not, if there are changes you need to make in your life, if we can help you in any way, please take the opportunity you have to make your need known now while we stand and while we sing.